So I'll give you a leading agile analogy. So we go and we sell an account and we do a two day workshop at define the end state and a pilot. It's this number of dollars, this number of people. We have outcomes based plans for all these things. We have suggested activities. Mm -hmm. We have guidance and resources and all this kind of stuff. So we have a way that we run these things. Okay. Now, the person on the ground has a tremendous amount of autonomy in terms of how to sequence work. The team can self-organize the work. They work with the clients. The clients do some things. There's inspection and adaption all over the place. Right. But they're not, they're not violating leading agile's frames. Mm -hmm. They're not violating the contract frames. They're not violating the client's frames. It's not like I had one consultant, an early consultant, um, who's, who basically said to me, you're writing a contract. And I was like, I was like, this contract makes no sense. This is like, I don't understand how work. He goes, well, the contract's just what we get them to do to buy the engagement. And then we're just going to do whatever we need to and get on the ground. I'm like, no, that's not what we do. They're buying the, the outcome. Yeah. They're buying the methodology. They're buying the visibility. They're buying the metrics. They're buying what I tell people. It's like, if we don't do what we say we're going to do, we're stealing from our clients. We have to have like a barely sufficient structure. We have to have a barely sufficient organizational model, right? Right. That encourages collaboration and human connection and autonomy and ownership within really, really tight constraints. Yeah. Right. And within those tight constraints, people have tons of freedom, be themselves, show up to work, do all those things. Yeah. But if a scrum team can't establish a stable velocity against a known backlog, we're screwed. If you're just dragging work from one sprint to the next, this doesn't work. It doesn't work, right? right? Hey, welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. I'm Dave Pryor and Mike Kottmeyer is back. Mike, thanks for taking time out of your holiday afternoon. Happy to do it. I, my wife actually told me, she goes, most people are taking the day off. And I went, Really? Maybe I need to check with the team and see who's working today. I think this is, um, this is probably the last podcast either one of us is going to do for the for the year. Before that we that is down. true. I think we technically have one on the calendar next Friday. But ah, all we'll right, then. Well, we got one more. That. The last one before Christmas, I guess. Yeah, um, you know, in the consulting world, like these, these are interesting times because it's like the clients settle down, but there's a lot of end of year yeah. stuff. And then there's a lot of getting ready for next year that happens. Yeah. And so it's like there's, there's less um, – Less external and more internal yeah, focus. It's so, a good time to get so I'm gonna, So I'll probably shut down after this and then, um, you know, pick it up on Tuesday and I'll just be kind of a light week and cool. you know, head into the new year. So, yeah. All right. So so for those cool. of you watching, Mike and I prepared a number of topics. We didn't decide where to start, but I would so like to talk about stuff. Well, I right? want to start with the things people have been commenting on because we did. Oh, OK. Cool. We ha there has been a, a, a bunch of people that responded to the last video we did. We talked about culture. We talked about color coding things like mm -hmm. that. Um, and a lot of people were referencing the culture each strategy for breakfast phrase yeah. over and over and over again. Um, okay. And I know you have sort of a specific take on that. So would you mind maybe kind of laying that out for folks? Well, well yeah, right. So it's interesting, right? So the people, what, you know, leading agiles, we're, we're fairly um, vocal about the idea that as a transformation agency, that we don't we don't lead with culture. Mm -hmm. I think culture is important too, but but the methodology that we follow is like we get the organizational structure, we get the operating model in place, we enable it with agile, lean, 
Scrum, Kanban kinds mm-hmm. of practices, right? Get cadences of accountability in place, get metrics visible, all those kinds of things. And then we encourage mindset to change um, within that coherent system of delivery. Okay. And what I find a lot of times in um, conversations around mindset, it's like mindset and culture and how people feel about going to work and how engaged they are. Like they all kind of become blended into a thing. Okay. And, and, and I think the problem with that is that while those things are important, I don't think that that's what Drucker who said that, I guess if some people are arguing whether Drucker actually somebody said did that. everything on the internet says it was Drucker. I don't know. But. Somebody, somebody challenged me on that being a Drucker quote. It's always been a Drucker quote to me. Um, that, you know, when Drucker said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, I just don't think he was saying that like 20 percent time and squish rooms and games and things like that. I don't think he's saying that that eats strategy for breakfast. And that was kind of my epiphany for this year. It's what we talked about in the podcast. It's what I've mm-hmm. kind of been running around and, and talking about and different keynotes I've done around the country is this idea that I think we all view culture through our own different personality lenses. Sure. And and the the case that I'm making relative to Scrum is that if you look at the, the teaming strategies in Scrum, how backlogs are built in Scrum, how we deliver product every two weeks, how we measure, how we control a Scrum initiative, right. a Scrum product development lifecycle, um, there's a whole lot of very structured, disciplined, metrics-oriented mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I know the size of my backlog, I know the velocity of my team, I can start to anticipate scope and duration. I can start to anticipate cost. Um, and so to me, that is, that is one expression of culture. How do we operate? Okay. Like what are our norms? What are our standards around how we operate? Mm -hmm. And, and then the other side of that, that was one of the early revs of this this year. I was going like, I call that red culture because in that color code assessment we use, we, uh, we talk about logical controlling. And so there's a logical controlling frame to Scrum mm-hmm. that creates the safety for the more emotional connected side. Okay. And I think people, I think there's a lot of people in Agile that have really gravitated to the, the teamwork, the camaraderie, mm-hmm. the connection. The thing that was missing uh, in Waterfall. Yeah, it was missing, right? right. And, and, and it legitimately needs to be there. But it's like somehow like the precedents got messed up. It's like if we create that, then the magic's going to happen. Okay. And and like in a in a startup, sure, right? Um, in a in a small company, like maybe. Okay. But you know, a company gets much past thirty to forty to hundred to hundred and fifty, and and now you have to have an operating model that accommodates um, being able to deliver at scale. Yeah. And but you want to try to build that operating model in a way that preserves the blue side of the culture. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what we advocate for is in these tiered systems that that we tend to implement is, you know, really solid collaborative teaming strategies at the work surface, collaborative um, decomposition and planning and rolling wave, progressive elaboration, um, very collaborative 
um, enterprise portfolio management, collaborative investment decisioning. So there's a lot you can do with agile and lean in a in a very structured and disciplined agile operating model. Okay. Um, and and I believe that that kind of an operating model is a necessary precondition. Okay. To create the culture like the blue side of the culture, emotional connection side of the culture that we want. Because if everybody's running around in chaos, there's no, so I did this example, right? Um, I I don't want to, I don't want to name names or, or specifics because I'm probably going to get all of it wrong if I try, but I was, I was at a little conference in Maui a couple weeks ago and we did an exercise and, and the exercise that this speaker brought to us was something that she did with very high level executives um, in companies that you would know. Okay. And, and what it, what, how I characterized it in all fairness, this wasn't her characterization, but as I characterized it, it was an empathy exercise. Okay. It was like, it was an exercise designed to show that people's behavior is a manifestation of the system that they operate in. Okay. And rather than accuse the person, we should, we should recognize that they're uh, a player within a system. Yes. Okay? okay. And have empathy for their position. And and it gets into the and I'm I'm probably going to get this wrong. Um, uh, oh gosh, um, dimming dimming quote. Okay. Um, where like ninety five percent of problems are system problems, not people problems. Isn't that a dimming quote? Now I'm like super self conscious. I don't know. I think it's a Deming quote. Um, and so and didn't you wait, did you mean that they were people problems, not system problems? No, no, 95% of systems problems, problems. Are system problems, not people problems. Okay. Did I say that wrong? No, no, you said you said exactly the same thing. I was just trying to make sure. Okay, yeah. Well, because what you were basically saying is that is that when people show up to work, they're operating within a system. Yeah. And, and and again, I the way I received the exercise was that we need to have empathy for the people around us uh-huh. because they're they're operating rationally within the system that's in place. Okay. But but what what kind of I, I, I probably got inappropriately annoyed with the presenter, right? Okay. And I probably should just keep my mouth shut in certain circumstances, but it was a small conference. <laughs> as soon as she was like, room. we're gonna do an empathy exercise, Mike was like, yeah, oh, no. like Let's get Mike out of that room, right? Um, no, but but what I said is I go, I go, here's my problem with this exercise. Like I agree that we should have empathy for people mm-hmm. and that people behave in accordance with the system they operate in. But there was no evidence of a rational system in the assignment that you gave us. Okay. Right? There was no there was a hierarchy. Right. There was a these people are in charge and these people are middle managers and these people are doers. And there was a chain of command and there's yeah. a few things But like that's not a system. A, an org chart and a delegation model isn't a system. OK. It doesn't describe how I make decisions. It doesn't describe how I decompose work. It doesn't describe sure. how I hold people accountable, like any of that stuff. But, it's just but it could describe how they be, why they behave the way they do, right? Well, well, for sure, right? So the point, the point of the exercise wasn't lost on me. Like I really do believe, and and maybe this will make my point. I do believe that people operate um, in the system, however it is that they understand sure. the system. But so if we want. Um, culture change, if we want the blue side culture change in an organization, we don't go to people and say, oh, we need to play more games and we need to be more creative. And we need to be more collaborative right. and we need to have more empathy and we need to have more connection. And we need to love each other more. 
which we probably do, yeah. right? I'm not arguing that. But I have to put people in a rational system that will give them space to, to, to do that. exhibit those the, behaviors. The system facilitates their opportunity. Yeah, and, and, and in Scrum, right? Mm-hmm. In Scrum, how that is done is we have a persistent, complete cross-functional team, mm-hmm. right? Within that team, those team members get to decide how they do the work. Yeah. They don't get to decide what work, but they get to decide how to do the work. The product owner brings them the work and their accountability is they produce a working tested increment at the end of every sprint. We measure the velocity. We do a retrospective wash, rinse, and paint ad infinitum, right? Yeah. And that is the system that allows those people to have appropriate ownership. Sure. The, the, the system allows for the inspection and adaptation. Now, within that system, those people have to have the mindset and a yeah. readiness to do it for sure, right? It works better if you get both sides in balance. Right. But the challenge that I think that we have, this might dovetail into some of the other things that we want to talk about around industry trends and sure. stuff like that. I think I think what's happening is that our insistence on culture first, but culture as described on what I call blue culture mm-hmm. or yellow culture – we want to have fun. We want to have connection. Sure. We want to have intimacy. We want to have relationships and collaboration. Yeah. Like, like if that is how we define culture and that's and we're in our hypothesis is that if we get people to act this way and behave this way, the other stuff will way, happen. All the other stuff will happen. And I actually think it's more likely to go the opposite yeah. way. If we get the systems and structures in place, and that's why I've anchored for years on this idea. It's just a, such a simple, like, um, uh, I want to say mnemonic, but that's probably not right. Again, I'm super con- self-conscious now because, like, people are fact-checking me and everything. And uh, <laughs> just as a funny aside, um, I used to do scouts with my kids um, when they were little. And, and when they were really little was pre-iPhone. Mm-hmm. It was pre, like, ubiquitous internet, ubiquitous Back web, in the day. App, yeah. So there's this guy, really, really good friend of mine for the last 30 years, and, and our sons were in together, and he's just like, you walk through the woods with him, he's, he's like an elementary school teacher, and he's, you know, tells me about this leaf and this tree sure. and this bug and this, and then in the age of fact-checking, I started fact-checking him, and he's like half the time wrong, right? And, and, uh, and it was so cool before I could fact-check him. I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. I want to learn more about that. And then I'd fact him, I'm like, dude, like, you're full of crap. I have a, so, I have a friend whose who's argument against smartphones is they've destroyed every decent bar argument you've ever, you're ever Well, there have. you go, right? That's 100% right. So yeah. can yeah. I ask you a question? I want to ask you a question. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> if, if when Frederick Taylor got started, right, he was solving mm-hmm. a specific problem. And whether you yeah. like his approach or not, it solved the problem they had. And it also is what got us through World War One and World War Two because yeah. we could turn yeah. farmers into shipbuilders. Agile yeah. comes along as the fix for waterfall. And now you're having things like you were talking about Scrum and there's a whole camp that's trying to say, if you're going to do Scrum, you have to do flow metrics or you're never going to understand what's happening. I'm wondering if as Agile has evolved, the two things may have occurred. This is what I want to check with you on. I see more and more people trying to adopt Agile practices, but they're adopting like half of them. And then they don't understand why it doesn't work. Their company doesn't have cross-functional teams, so they have one person who's developer, product owner, scrum master, um, and they're trying to overcompensate in other places. And yeah. Agile's response mm-hmm. seems to be things like, well, you need better metrics, you need more of this, you need more of that. But I'm wondering if there's a new problem that's emerged. Like, are we just not fundamentally getting it yet? 
or people. Yeah. It's, it's the same. It's the same fundamental problem that we have, right? And, and, and man, at the risk of getting super esoteric, there's so much to unpack here. It's the same problem we have in religion. Same problem we have in politics. Same problem we have in methodology. Same problem we have in weight loss. Same problem we have in almost everything. It's like we try to turn everything into a set of prescriptions. Yeah. Like go do this and you'll be okay. Right. Um, another quick, I'm going to, trust me, I'm going to go down a path. <laughs> and I'm going to pull it back up. Um, so I've been, my son gave me a copy of the book Outlive by Peter Atia. Okay. And I actually like the book. I think it's a really smart book. And uh, so he's a medical doctor, really into longevity, health and fitness. And, and so he has a, so it's a good book if you're interested. I won't talk too much about the book. But one of the things, kind of the point he's making is that in the medical world, what he calls medicine 2.0, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like, um, do this, take this pill, do this regimen, do whatever, one size fits all. Yeah. And what this book is really about is if you're really interested in health and longevity, you got to really understand the underlying principles of health and longevity. Okay. And then you have to do what works for you. So, okay? so does that mean that I don't have to fast for 16 hours a day? Because I can't. Well, so it's interesting, right? So he he talks a lot about and is very open about his um his uh, kind of history of dogmatism in certain areas. So he was very much like a pro keto guy, pro low fat, like super low or super high, or high fat, high protein, right? Um, you know, really hyper low carbohydrate. Um, very interested in fasting, not only intermittent fasting, but long term fasting. And and there's this tendency to want to say, okay, this is the diet that works. This is the health sure. protocol that works. Everybody's got to do this. this. medicine, right? Yeah. But but what we're starting to learn is that our bodies are very complex. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so he doesn't really talk about like nutrition as much as he talks about nutritional biochemistry. So it's a really kind of a neat. It's a very high level treatment of a very interesting topic. And, you know, the what I was listening to this morning, he was talking about, you know, um, you know, different people respond to carbohydrates differently okay. and different people have different insulin spikes and different people respond to fats differently. Yeah. And so on a keto diet could be keto diet could be catastrophic for one person where a high carb diet could be catastrophic for a different one. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, and then there's like nuances. I've always responded better to really doing low carb. But what I found is I'm on a, a different plan that um, a coach I'm working with gave me where it's incredibly high protein um, and it's and it's actually um, moderately high carbs, more high, more carbs than I've eaten in like four cups of rice a day or something like that. It's like a lot of carbohydrates for me okay. and then very low fat, but it's also calorie restricted. Right. And the idea okay. is you have enough you have enough protein, you have enough carbohydrates to fuel your workouts. You're operating in a calorie restricted way it requires you to eat super, super clean. Okay. And the idea is you can build muscle and you can um, lose uh, body fat sure. while you do it. And I'm telling you, I've never eaten this way, this disciplined, and it feels absolutely great. It feels great. Okay. And it's like, and so like what I believed about keto, what I believed about high carbohydrates is like totally wrong. Right. And so this guy got it dialed in for me. Point being, right, is that is that we think we can show up in a diet or in a health thing and do something or mm-hmm. do part of something or get an idea and like that's going to work. But we're dealing with like really, really complex systems. Mm-hmm. And and I think what's going on, I think this is why we're seeing depressed numbers in scrum training, why prices of scrum classes are going down. I think the perceived value is going down because – there are so many people that are saying 
culture first. And this okay. is like, I'm a broken record on stuff. Yeah. They're culture first or somehow these practices are going to solve, solve the, problem. the problem. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's like creating teaming strategies is really difficult. Like it's, this is harder okay. than you think in practice. Yeah. It's harder than you think. Like, give me a moment here. And then right? I'm going to go someplace you're not going to like afterwards. Yeah. Well, it's okay. Right. It's harder than you think in practice yes. because you think to the, the level of realignment you have to have in an organization to fundamentally make these changes in a small product organization, super easy, single scrum team, three scrum teams, like not a hard problem, yeah. right? You're dealing with thousands of people dealing in complex legacy systems, mm-hmm. right? You can't organize around business capabilities. You can't really organize around products. The only thing you can kind of naturally organize around is, is maybe if it's got a segmented component architecture, you can organize around layers, mm-hmm. right? You can organize around skill. Like it's so difficult, right? It's so difficult. And the answer, ultimately, like a holistic transformation answer lies in you have to get the technology modernized. You have to get it wrapped in tests. Mm -hmm. You have to – it doesn't have to be all services oriented, but certain things have to be encapsulated. They have to be extracted. They have to be maybe moved to a cloud. They have to be put into a CACD pipeline. You know, maybe maybe we have to have a DevOps play. Um, there's so much change sometimes that has to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're looking at like org redesign, you're looking at governance redesign, you're looking at how it measures and controls and audit and compliance and how security and infrastructure works. And, and then you've got all the underlying technology stuff mm-hmm. and that has to be dealt with. And literally Scrum is coming along and telling people, well, if you just start doing Scrum, Scrum will help you identify your impediments and you remove your impediments. Yeah. And like people are like, 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 like put a gun in my head, yeah. right? It's, it's like, that's not going to solve it. But here's the other side. If you get the teaming strategies right, yeah, everything that, that happens in Scrum needs to happen. Okay. So it's not that Scrum's wrong. Right. You just have to create the conditions for Scrum. So let me get to your question. So we'll go all the way down off to and the then side. I, and then I get to jump in. I'm going to all the way back up and then okay. the floor, right? Yeah. So, so what tends to happen is that people don't fundamentally understand the principles of why Scrum works. Yeah. And they're complicit because it's so hard to create those conditions. Okay. Right? So what they do is that they adopt a subset of the practices. Mm-hmm. Um. Obviously, it's not going to work, right? So they adopt a subset of the practice. They have no compensating control. And not just Scrum. Like there's there's companies out there doing safe like halfway and stuff like that. Yeah, anything. Safe, less, whatever, right? Right. You pick your your methodology, right? And so so you have people that are picking and choosing certain aspects of the methodology that makes sense to them. They're doing it in a context that has not been um, sufficiently transformed right. to make any difference whatsoever. And, and then what happens is that they still are accountable for dates and deadlines yep. and, under, and they have fiduciary responsibility for the money's getting spent right. and what they're producing. These managers are accountable for producing results. So they go back to the, the traditional management techniques. Yeah. That at least gave them the illusion of certainty. Control, yeah. It, well, I, yeah, the illusion of certainty. And, the, and, and even if it's the illusion of – even if it is certainty and it is control or the illusion of certainty or the illusion of control, right. like at least it gives them the ability to go to their boss and say, this is when the team told me yeah. it's going to get done. I'm going to hold them accountable. And as soon as I know otherwise, I'll let you know. Yeah. 
where so many of the agilists want to say, oh, that's the problem. Just let the team do the best job they can. And I'm good with that if they're in the right system. Sure. Right. If they are a legitimate team with a backlog mm-hmm. and are able to produce like that team should be able to operate independently in that context. Right. But absent that context, they're going to fail. And in the presence of repeated failure, right. people are going to project manage them. Yeah. And then they're going to go, what's the value of this scrum master? What's the value of this? process, this mm-hmm. daily stand-up, this retrospective, why am I doing any of this yeah. if it's not contributing to my business outcomes? Okay. And that's the fundamental problem. So, you know, okay, I'm going to pause. I'm going to get my yeah. up. <laughs> okay, right. cool. So okay, here's, here's where I would, yeah. I'm going to try to throw a wrench into this and, and head after okay. a topic that I know is not one of your favorite topics. Um, no, it's, it's you talked a few topic. minutes ago about how this, this author wants people to understand like the reasons behind why you would take this diet. Oh, Peter. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And we've talked about how we put teams together and we teach them a way to work, and then they kind of go cargo cult on it sometimes, and it doesn't really have the results at once yeah. that we want. Um, there's a guy I interviewed for my other podcast a while back, and he works, he runs process at a company in, in Austria, I think it is. Um, they build uh, brakes for trains. Okay. At his company, before they put you on a scrum team, they teach you personal Kanban because they want to make sure that people are agile at a personal level. They optimize okay. for themselves. Then when they get together with the team, they already have those core beliefs built in for themselves. And okay. absent of that, you're taking somebody who's probably in a waterfall command and control background saying, be part of a scrum team, you know, magically make things happen. But they can't do that for themselves yet. I mean, is that is that a missing piece that we just haven't, however you're doing it, we haven't taught people to internalize and inspect and adapt the way that they approach their work, that they approach the craft of their whatever their career is, that they're not constantly doing retrospectives and learning to get better within their own personal system. And then that system becomes part of a, a team, which becomes part of another system in the company itself. Okay. Now, before you speak, I want to let everybody know, Mike does not like to talk about personal combat. <laughs> no, it's, it's not that, I, I mean, it's, it's fine, right? I mean, if, if like, if you ask me, um, like, like I don't call it personal content. But you're always running experiments, testing well, new things, well, trying to optimize let yourself. Me go, let, me go, let me take it. Let me even show you how much I like. So I do. I kind of do annual goal setting. Yeah. I do quarterly planning. I do monthly checkpoints with myself. I do weekly and effect sprints. I have a cadence of planning and review and retrospective. You're agile in your life. I'm agile in my life, and and I I try to set goals that are not. Um, you know, they're not outcome always specific or if they're outcome specific, they're not task specific. Right. And, and so like what I've learned about myself is it's like there is no one goal that I really want right now. Mm-hmm. Um, what I want is a state of being like I want to feel good in my body. I want to feel good in my soul. I want to feel good in my relationships. I want to have um, abundance at work. And right? That's an evolution of your freedom of time and place goal from before. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right. And so, and so do I think personal agility is, um, is interesting? Like, sure. Do I think the absence of personal agility is the reason why team agility or agility at scale doesn't work? Um, 
I don't think it's that straight of a line. Okay. How I would, how what I would understand, and this is you and I were talking before we've brought up the Federer Taylor thing a little bit. Um, I think that what most people don't understand is how systems work. Yeah. How abstraction works. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to deal with uncertainty. They don't know how to manage risk. Yeah. Right. Um, one of the most, I, I always have to periodically give Chris Matt's um, uh, credit. We were sitting in Seattle uh, with David Anderson and a few others at a um, APLN event, maybe, or okay. a conference that David did over there. I can't remember. Um, it might be an APLN conference that he hosted out there. Okay. And I was sitting there with Chris Matz and he, tur- and he ta- taught me the real options thing, right? Yep. And if anybody knows Chris Matz and real options, he basically says options have value, options expire, mm-hmm. never decide early unless you know why. And then he says the most important thing of all. He goes, most people would rather be wrong than be uncertain mm-hmm. because being uncertain sucks. It's scary, yeah. It's scary, right? So now imagine that I am in a complex, dynamic system that I don't know how to operate within. Mm-hmm. I don't understand abstraction. I'm not comfortable with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. I I perceive I'm going to be held accountable for a job that I don't. I'm not really clear how to do. Right. What people will tend to do is that they will say, "Okay, just tell me what I need to do to be successful." Yeah. Tell me what I need to do. Give me, give me the script. Where do I go when there's a fire? What door do I walk right? out? Yeah. Then you throw in stuff like Carol Dweck's growth mindset versus fixed mindset, mm-hmm. right? You, you throw in um, the fact that um, it's not safe for me to fail. And if I fail, it defines who I am as a human being. Okay. Then you throw in the personality stuff like, well, I'm a blue personality, which means I'm emotionally controlling. It means I want intimacy. I want connection. Sure. When you throw that person in with somebody like me who's logically controlling, who who does, who wants power and control, and I don't mean that in a bad way, yeah. but like I want things to be in order. Right. Right. Yeah. And then you have other people that they're, they're there to have fun and you have other people that want to follow the rules. And so then you mix in personality types. And if the system isn't in order and people aren't don't understand how to manage uncertainty, ambiguity, risk, mm-hmm. abstraction. They don't understand systems architecture and systems design. And they they tend to locally optimize rather sure. than they don't have the purview to optimize the system. And now you're dealing with growth versus fixed mindset. Now you're dealing with different personality types. Well, and isn't it multiple systems as well? Different levels of agreeable, agree, agreeableness. Yeah. Is it multiple systems as well? Because you keep talking about the system and you're referring to work, but I'm thinking everybody I work with is part of a system within their home or within well, their the things they do outside point, of work. They all bang yeah, into each other. But at some point you have to you have to think about like what is what are the boundaries that I'm trying to, yeah. So, I mean, you could say, well, I have a system at work and I have a system at home. If my kids are sick or I'm fighting with it my wife. how you show up to the other system. system. Yeah, it's going to, yeah. But it's like, just take that out for just a second, okay. right? So it's the difference between like, if I, God, I can even pull this in like, like, like the whole thing. Like, I think one of the challenges we have in the United States is around, um, is a, is a, is an is a encapsulation orchestration problem. And I don't want to get like political here, but but you should explain but, what that uh, means. Yeah. So like, well, encapsulation orchestration is like if you can't encapsulate, it, like a scrum team's encapsulated. I have a product owner, 
Scrum team's a black box. It produces a result. Okay. I get steady inputs in. I get reliable outputs out. Feedback loops, right? Yeah. And so that's an encapsulated team. Anytime I have a dependency between something, mm-hmm. then I have um, I've created something that has to be orchestrated. Okay. Right. In a small system, few teams, and an occasional dependency, they can self-organize that dependency. Yeah. Where where dependencies, and this is the hugest problem in Agile, where dependencies are rampant because of the way we've organized teams and systems and structures and all these different things, then you have orchestration out the wazoo, right? right. And think terrorism, think project management, think all that stuff, right? And so and so it's all comes down to encapsulation versus orchestration. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges we have in the U.S. is that if you look at the way the U.S. was designed, at least as I understand it, and just for everybody, like I'm not a political scientist. I'm, I'm not an authority on this. Fact check me. I don't think I'm wrong, but I think I'm directly correct. cracking their knuckles. So ready to acknowledge that I might not be correct enough to some political science major satisfaction. Okay. okay. So, you know, it's, it's basically to me an encapsulation orchestration mechanism. Like anything that's not delegated to the federal government is the purview of the state. Anything that's not explicitly delegated to the state is the purview of the county, county okay. to the municipality, right? That kind of a thing, right? It's a, it's a separation of concerns. And so the idea is, is that we, we push decision-making down mm-hmm. and we reduce orchestration across, but there's a lot of really hot button issues on the left and on the right. And I think as we have become a more um, we become more saturated with information. Mm-hmm. We've become more mobile as a society. As an individual, I expect to be able to go anywhere in the country and experience the same Wi-Fi set of standards, yeah. laws, ethics, morals, right? All that stuff. Yeah. And, and, and because we have information flow and because we can move across boundaries, mm-hmm. there is a push to move things up to federal decision-making. Mm-hmm. Right. And the way I think the system was designed is that is that we would push things down and make local decisions. Yeah. And, and I think it's I think it's a similar kind of problem. Right. You take, you know, you know, if, if you if you had all the people of one personality type or you had one, you know, or you had people that were abstract thinkers in one place and people that were concrete thinkers in another and you had. Um, you know, people that wanted to follow the rules in one place and people that wanted to make their own rules or you had growth mindset or you had fixed. If there was some homogeneity in it, then um, then, yeah, maybe. Right. But it's like but that's not our situation and it's it's complex. And so what we have to figure out is like, what is the minimum amount of structure that we need to have in place that brings order Enough order to, to, be able to the environment, yeah. a barely sufficient level of order and clarity, but yet still allows for creativity. And mm-hmm. I, you want to get super esoteric for a minute. Like, I think it's a lot of like what like that little yin yang symbol is trying to do. Where I talk about order versus Balance. chaos, yeah. left brain versus right brain or divine masculine versus divine feminine. Um Lisa Atkins was actually talking a little bit about that up in Canada, and I made reference to it in my personality talk. Um, it, it's it's like it's like there's a balance, and and if there's not sufficient order mm-hmm. to constrain the chaos, then what will happen is that order will be imposed because total chaos is unacceptable. Okay, right. Yeah. Um, but if Order is too imposed, 
it in, it, it, it imposes it. Yeah. too little it's too little creativity right it's too little flow okay. through the system and so so what scrum on the small is trying to do what safe at scale is trying to do what leading agile's adaptations of all these things are trying to do is how do you create a barely sufficient order a barely sufficient structure right so that people can have autonomy and connection and we can inspect and adapt and we can respond sure. to change. We can do all these things we need to do, but yet the business can still make and meet commitments. It can still be um, have fiduciary responsibility to its economic stakeholders. So that it can. Well, yeah, this is a big deal. What you just said. I don't, I'm going to mansplain yeah, it back for everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that. You can have all the things that you're trying to get with these processes, but you have to put enough of a structure in place for them to be allowed to, to take place and to thrive. And if you don't, they're not going to work. That, that's that's my that's my belief, right? Because like I see so many people just say things like, "Trust the team," and we have to empower people, and we have to let the people closest to the decision making decide. And like that's oh that's okay if like. Like maybe it's okay if like you're in a situation, I'm trying to think like maybe an example where it's like, okay, we're doing a call center. We want to empower people to make refunds or, sure. or do whatever. Like we give them some guide rules and like let the people close to the decision make because we don't want to create a bureaucracy around decision making. Right. Okay, cool. But like if I'm going to invest a billion dollars in a software project that has to be done in 18 months, mm -hmm. um, then like I have to have – it's irrational to think yeah. that that is not going to be delivered um, with a certain level of control. So you can you can have all the self-organization you want as long as you hit the deadlines and the budget or whatever. Well, it's self. Well, so, again, I think in most cases and I know there's like examples like I listen to what Jurgen Apello talks about. I listen to some others where, you know, people move to the work that they're most interested in and all mm -hmm. these things. Right. Like if you've really built a company that is designed to accommodate that kind of movement and the market rewards it, like more power to you. Right. Right. But like imagine like in leading Agile's world. So I have 15 or 20 accounts at any given time. Each one has a set of objectives. Each one has a dollar amount. We've roughed in the number of consultants that we want to assign to each one. We've made commitments. Then I go to my consultants and I say, well, just go work on whatever project most interests you. And like the, the really cool companies get all my consultants and the difficult companies like nobody's going to change right? their calendar. And, and yeah. it's like, it's like, well, no, like not that. Right. Um, like, but maybe we can give people some choice in terms of which clients they would like to work with. Maybe they get a vote or they get to participate mm -hmm. in there. They get some say. And then like once they're on the account, like we have a framework for how we solve problems. But within that framework, they have a lot of ability to adapt the solutions in the local. Right. Like like if if a consultant and this happens occasionally, like a consultant comes and they, they want to work for us and we hire them and we teach them expeditions and base camps and outcomes based planning and our Pister model and how we do activity planning right. and how we do metrics and all these things. And if somebody says, well, I don't buy into that. Right. Like I want to just do my own thing. Well, that's unacceptable because that's not who leading agile is. Sure. Right. But if, but, but I can tell them that within that framework, there's a tremendous amount of ability to apply that stuff locally yeah. in a non-dogmatic way. That's really creative. So the, so the constraints give you freedom. About, yeah. Just what is that? I'm the sorry. Constraints give you the freedom. Well, you know, or they enable the freedom. 
No, I think that's absolutely right. Cubby talks about in the seven habits, like, like if you want to have the freedom to be on um, stage and play Beethoven's sixth concerto or something Mm -hmm. like you better, you better have practiced and you better know how to play it. Right. And there was a lot of structure and discipline that went into being able to have that freedom. Like I don't have the freedom to play the guitar the way I want to play it because I haven't put in the practice to be that kind of a guitar player. Do you think that the people that were all like ask the team, the team will just self-organize that first generation mm-hmm. of agilists, um, has that problem changed? What do you mean? Has in that, that, in that what they were trying to do was their belief was like in these small teams, like originally a bunch of people in a room, just let them self-organize. They'll figure it out. They have stuff they have to deliver. They're passionate about it. Um, but now as we get into at the enterprise level, you can't have a hundred teams all doing whatever the hell they want. They've got to figure out a way to work for the company to survive. I I don't own the history behind this. Again, I'm sure somebody's going to fact check me and tell me I'm full of shit, but I think the story is largely, um, is largely true. Okay. I'm probably going to get this quote wrong too. I want to say it was like Ward Cunningham or somebody like that who said something like we underappreciated the amount of implicit knowledge that was in the room. Mm -hmm when we specified some of these methodologies. Yeah. I think that was roughly the quote. And and I don't know for sure if it was Ward Cunningham. I'm, I'm trying, trying to, to look it up. Like a Kent Back or something like that. And I want to say I saw it in a tweet or something like something. But, you know, you think about those early Agile projects. You had some really, really high-level people in the room. Yeah. And they were – they were at the table. They were doing some things. They were solving, rescuing some projects that were, um, you know, I imagine in crisis. You know, I think about the stuff I've heard Jeff Sutherland say around the early patient keeper stuff. And um, and so it's like it's so it's like the context, the environment, the the top in engineers sitting in a room with a customer. You know, just imagine that they got that for free. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the presence of those conditions, they started codifying things like Scrum and mm-hmm. FDD and, you know, whatever. Right. right. And or XP. And then they got codified. And then, you know, somebody comes along and says, well, let's put a certification. Let's start talking mm-hmm. about it. And then you look up and it's um, and it's, you know, 20 years later and nobody knows like the stories and why it works yeah. and how it happened. And what conditions were in place? And they go, oh, everybody wants to do Agile. Let's go to Agile training and let's do Scrum yeah. and we're going to learn this. And then all of us, we all have different points of view. So like to me, like what I talk about, it feels inarguable. And, and the business has to be able to run the business, but yet we want to have people make local decisions. Right. So like what is, the, what is the minimal structure that we can put in place that's going to create the results that we want to create? And that you can keep inspecting and adapting them. Yeah. And, and I'm telling you, in a lot of organizations, there is a battle because it's like the people that are closer to the ground have heard these messages mm-hmm. and they go, well, it's management's problem. If they would just let us operate this way, everything would be fine. Yeah. But they've never sat in those seats. Right. And they don't know what those leaders are that they have to do what they're accountable yeah. for. Um, you know, one of the, I was having a conversation with a company that called us earlier this year. We've had a few conversations with them at this point. 
and they were asking me like, well, what are tips and tricks to get um, leaders that that just don't get it to get it? Yeah. And I and I said, well, I said, think about this, right? These leaders are probably really smart. They've probably been in your company a long time. They probably know how these systems work. And um, I'm, I'm assuming they're good people. They're not evil. They want to do the right thing. Right. They want to do what they're told. They want to um, be successful, yeah. right? All these different things. And if they're fighting you on these ideas, rather than label them and say that they're um, not agile or they're right. resistant to change or they're bad in some way, they're flawed, like what constraints are they operating in that you don't see? Yeah. Where is the system their right? impediment? Yeah. I mean, because there's, I mean, I talk a lot, you know, so early days of leading agile, current days of leading agile for that matter, you know, we're dealing with really large scale mainframe systems and, mm -hmm. you know, architects that are really making, they have so much knowledge in their head and really complex problems to solve. And somebody comes along with their little lunch pail and is like, hey, let's do scrum. And yeah. they're like, like, yeah, I got it. Like, but like, how's that going to solve this really, really complex problem that I have to do? Yeah. Like, it's just going to get in my way and annoy me. Just leave me alone and let the adults Like work, the little right? chicken and foghorn leghorn. Yeah. And it's like, and it's like, and it's like, it, it, we don't even, and people don't even know what they don't know. Right. Right. And, and the complexity and the constraints. And so what you have to start to do is you have to start making steps. And, and again, it's just like what you see in large scale cloud migration and you see it in, um, you know, some of the labels that get put around this stuff, technical uplift and product modernization right. and things. It's like, it's like I said something to Alistair Coburn 20, not maybe 20 years ago. It's probably too long, but maybe like in the early days of leading agile, I got to spend some time with him and David Spann up in North Carolina. And I had this like realization. We were doing a bunch of work. I might have been at Fiserv at the time. I can't remember. Check free. And like a lot of the work we were doing is as we were doing projects, we were pulling apart the legacy monolith and putting it into a more services oriented way. Okay. And I had this realization that like what we were trying to do at Leading Agile with we were basically like we were basically doing like a services oriented extraction or product extraction from a legacy monolith. Right. And that's what it's like is a similar. There's a parallel in the transformation world, we're okay. taking what is in effect a legacy monolith of an organization. We're starting to pull it apart into its components so it can it can operate as a more services oriented enterprise. Yeah. And what I think is interesting is, is if you pull that forward and it's really a large part of like where leading agile is headed over the next couple of years is really this. Um, we're going to make a, a really solid push into into basically aligning what could probably be easily understood as the business architecture with the domain design okay. and created like encapsulated entities organizationally at the business level, and at the business level, okay. but with encapsulated technology, um, all in the cloud, all modernized. Right. Like, I think that's what it's, it's going to take. Um, Gartner seems to want to call this uh, like a composable enterprise. I think that's, I like that yes. idea. Right. Um, Cause just the way an application architecture would want to be composable, we want we want our organizations to be composed. We want our organizations to be wrapped in tests, mm -hmm. because if I can if I can encapsulate it and wrap it in tests, and it's small enough, I can empower it to make local decisions. Okay, where I can't empower people to make local decisions is when they're connected to all the other mess in the organization, right. and their local decision would become a local optimization. And it would ripple throughout the company. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, we talk about antibodies. We talk, but what what gets what what an, what gets antibodies going is when something is a local optimization and it's and it's disrupting the entire organism. Yep. Like the entire organism doesn't see that disruption as a positive, and it's not relative to the organization. Okay. Like it could be if it was applied, if it was a different organization, sure. but it's not a healthy thing for that organization, right? Okay. Okay. Cool. Where do you want to go? So what Sorry. should they be doing? What do you mean? What should they be well, doing? you just said, you know, with what they're with the way that they're setting up, they're not creating an opportunity for this encapsulation. They don't get the ability to do what they need to do. I mean, what is the you would wave your magic wand and change thing for this? Well, okay, because so, what you're talking about is a pretty significant shift in a company. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's what that's what that's what we've been doing for forever, right? right? So you have to decide, and and this is the thing: is I don't think. I don't think every part of every organization needs to go that far. Okay. Like when we talk about um, untangling an or, or we talk about taking an organization from base camp one to two to three to four to five, mm-hmm. I don't have a ton of data around this it's kind of anecdotal, but what I'll say to people often is like 70% of your organization probably needs to be like base camp one, base camp two. Yeah. It needs to be reliable, predictable, probably needs to operate in smaller batches, mm-hmm. but it needs reliability. It needs predictability. It needs consistency. It needs to never have a defect. It needs to be never be off by a penny. It's like a classic Gartner Mode One kind of organization, which is it, like is it's, by it's, itself a lot to ask of a lot of companies. Well, yeah, I mean that's a transformation in and of itself yeah. for a lot of companies. There's a lot of companies, you know, that we work with that never make it past Base Camp One, Base Camp Two, right. and that is enough for them. And you can do agile and lean. And that's and okay. They don't have to go all the way to five. Okay. Don't have to go all the way yeah. to five. And then you've got this world of base camp three, base camp four. Like once I have products extracted and teams encapsulated and things wrapped in tests, yeah. then I can take those parts of the organization. I can change their funding models. Mm-hmm. I can allow them to make more local decisions. Okay. Connect the people, you know, connect the, the systems and the processes to the customers and markets, create really solid alignment there, allow them to inspect and adapt. Okay. Um, the main difference for us between base camp three, four, and five is that five is more like lean startup, yeah. right? Once I've created those conditions, encapsulation, local funding, um, autonomy, alignment with a customer, now I can say like, okay, if I if I so choose, I can say, okay, now go inspect and adapt, <clears throat> right. and just maximize the economics. I don't care what you build anymore. Okay. Right. And so um, very few of our clients have gone that like going from there yeah. all the way up. Like typically, that's too slow a process. So quite often what you do is you get your back end systems like a base camp two, maybe into like a base camp three. Right. And then the things that need to be base camp five, you almost like either you do like a service extract and move it okay. over. I guess that could happen or you build it from scratch or you do something greenfield if it really has to move that. Fast. OK. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot, man. Yeah. It's a lot, and this is and this is why this is why I think, um, you know, we're surviving this blip and thriving even this blip and market, where I think a lot of folks are losing patience with the simplistic view mm-hmm. of agile, right? And it's and it's interesting, right? So getting back to your question around personal agility, do I think personal agility is interesting? Sure. Right. Do I think the idea of doing progressive elaboration, rolling wave planning on your year is beneficial to you? Sure. I do that. Right. Right. Um, Does it imply more openness and awareness as I move that into a scrum team? Sure. Like if I had 
a scrum, if I actually had a scrum team mm -hmm. that but was a functional scrub team, it would be helpful if those people understood those principles going into that scrum team. Does the absence of that understanding create uh, an insurmountable barrier? No. Okay. Not so you think Not you can all. say, this is, we're going to use yeah. this approach. It's going to work this way. Just do the thing and trust it and yeah. it'll show us the way. Yeah, I think so, man. It's like, I mean, it's not a hard sell for people, right? Um, you know, if you have sufficient leadership that's willing, like where it gets incongruent, right? Where it gets really hard is where you have a leader that says, um, here's your scope, here's your time, here's your cost. You got to deliver all of this in 12 months. And I don't care how you do it. Yeah. And I'm not negotiating with you on anything. Okay. Well, then you're like, then everybody's just kind of like, like, screw it. Who cares? Right. Yeah. Use agile. Don't use agile. Like whatever. I'm on a death march for 12 months. Sure. So who cares? Right. But if we could have a reasonable conversation with somebody that says, OK, look, right. Triple constraints, project management, PMI. It's traditional. Like it's it, there's nothing edgy here. OK. Pick two. Right. Yeah. So in agile, we're picking we're picking time mm -hmm. and we're picking cost. Right. We're fixing team we're size and scope. We're picking, right. And we're flexing scope. Right. And so how do we flex scope? We flex scope by looking at the breadth of the scope, yep. right? What are like the major epics we need to do over time? And then we have the depth of scope, right? which is like the richness of the feature functionality. Here's another thing that I think that people um, stop thinking about when they think about scope is the idea of technical implementation. Your mm -hmm. assumptions about the technical implementation are 100% scope. Okay. Right. Your, your, your assumptions about the level or absence of technical debt is an assumption of scope. Your assumptions around um, defects in your backlog queue and that code base, your, yeah, go ahead. So what, you, what you're, it sounds to me like what you're advocating mm -hmm. for then is just a workforce that is more, I don't really know the best way to say this. Like Jim Benson would say that they give a shit, but people that are invested in understanding and learning and not just doing well, the thing because we're supposed to well, do the well, thing. Okay, so here's, okay, get now back to your Taylorism thing. I have to create a context in that organization where people don't turn their brains off. When if it's yeah, just like, yeah, I'm absolutely, right. Chaos, 100%. I'm living in chaos with unreasonable expectations and it's just a death march. It's like, show up and tell me what to do. Yeah. Okay. And I will show up and I'll write the code and I will totally detach from the organization's outcomes. But if you can say to me, look, this is a scrum team you're on and here's the user stories you're responsible for. And on these intervals, these user stories need to map up to these features and these features need to map up to these epics. Yeah. I need you to make rational trade-offs in that scope hierarchy yeah. to optimize my chances of being in market by February. Okay. And when, if you need to make user story level decisions, take them out, put them in, don't care. Okay. I need the feature done. If you're gonna, if you're going to um, make major scope changes to the feature, the performance of the feature, right. well, then we need to have a conversation. If those features are going to make major scope changes, the absence of them are going to make major scope changes to the episode. We need to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah. But it's like you can set up cadences mm -hmm. that allow people to have reasonable conversations about breadth right. or depth or. Are we going to solve the technical issues? Are we going to do the runway right. issues? Are we going to do all those other things? Because all of that stuff is scope. Okay. Like the business kind of does want to say like, well, here's the requirements that I need. 
you know, I don't care about any of the technical stuff, but they have to care about the technical stuff. I was explaining to uh, an executive one time who happens to be my father-in-law, not (laughs) not my father-in-law, he's my son's father-in-law. That would be so, yeah, I don't know what that relationship, he's like, he's like the son's wife's dad. Yes. No, my son's, yeah, my son's wife's dad, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were talking, we were going to a football game one time. We were talking about technical debt. And I explained to him technical debt. And he's like, oh, like he had no, he he had no idea. And I was explaining to him the idea that because, you know, you're used to asking for this much stuff. And then over time, that's getting slower and slower and slower and slower. And you think it's like a performance issue on the team. But because you've been putting so much pressure on it, they've been taking shortcuts all the time. Right. Um, not fixing defects, not dealing with architectural issues, not dealing with testing, not dealing with CICD pipelines, not doing DevOps, not dealing yeah. with any of the things that makes that thing scale. And so now you have a situation where they're doing 90 percent of their stuff is maintenance and 10 percent of it is new feature development. So it's not just create a system that lets them own a better way of working, but create a system that doesn't prevent them from finding a better way of working. Oh, gee. Well, so, so again, like, um, there was we're going to wrap wrong. it up soon if you're watching. No, no well, okay. Uh, well, this is what it's I told you. Like it's been an hour you're already. You don't have a hard stop. We can go forever. Maybe we'll just get Tim to break it up into multiple things. Um, so this is something, this is, you, you say, you say build systems that don't get in the way of people finding better yeah, ways to work. Because there are systems okay. in place that that would in, you could enable a culture where people show up the way that you want. So this was, this was but there's structure that stops them from doing that. I want to say before you and I were working together, you invited me to come speak at a scrum gathering in Orlando. Does that sound right? Um, yeah, at the, at the thing where I got um, – where the PMI guys came and met with Schwaber and Sutherland for the first time. That they give was that it? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, you had also you had also given me a speaking slot that you couldn't use in like Ordev in Sweden. That, well, was that wasn't. Cool. Yeah, I couldn't go. I recommended you, which is yeah, yeah an awesome. Cool. If you if you ever get a, t- a chance to speak at Ordev, you should absolutely go because it's amazing. Yeah, it was awesome. It was a great speaker experience. My wife actually went with me. It's the first time she had been to Sweden, so it was pretty cool. Um, but anyway. Um, there's something like uh, Brian Merrick and Jeff Sutherland were on stage and Brian Merrick said something to the effect of like um, self-organization was never intended outside of class boundaries. Mm-hmm. I'm not like a hardcore technical guy. Right. But I know enough about object oriented programming, that kind of stuff. Sure. What he was basically saying is that self-organization wasn't intended. Like at scale. Yeah. Right. It was intended within the confines of a team working on a class, basically. Yeah. That's how I understand it. And and we've taken this to be like, I'll tell you another thing that is wholly misunderstood and often abused is um, David Marquet's book, Turn the Ship Around. Yeah. Right? And it's almost as if like, so I look at that book and he's basically saying, I am the captain of a multi-billion dollar nuclear submarine. And um, it has, it's built, it has a way of working. It has procedure manuals. It has ways of keeping everybody alive. Yeah. There's procedures out the wazoo on how this. Now, within that context, these highly trained people, yeah. we want to push decision making down to the lowest level. Close, yeah. And we want to enable them within the confines of the rules of engagement, the rules of war, the operating of the ship and everything. We want to push some decision making down so those people make really good decisions. Yeah. We want to hold them accountable for the quality of those decisions. Yeah. 
I think what people think that book says is we're going to collaborate as a team and we're going to somehow self-organize the building of a nuclear submarine or those teams oh, are going to get on the nuclear submarine. Okay. What is that? A terrible misunderstanding of what he's saying. In the- well, that's just how I see people. It's like, it's like what they don't, what I, what I don't hear people acknowledge is the complexity of that system, the, the rules and procedures that are required to run that ship yep. in the very narrow window and the very narrow decision rights that that person at the work surface has. Yeah. And just to promote it, this is the book you read. If, if you haven't read Turn the Ship Around or you have read it, this is the one yeah. you read after, which talks about what you're talking about right now. Intent, oh, intent-based leadership. I want this result, and their job is to say, I intend to take these steps. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, but like, but that's even within, that's like what I use that as like commander's intent. Yeah, right? exactly. So, yeah. so, so I'll give you a leading agile analogy. So we go and we sell an account and we do a two day workshop at define the end state and a pilot system number of dollars, this number of people, we have outcomes-based plans for all these things. We have suggested activities. Mm-hmm. We have guidance and resources and all this kind of stuff. So we have a way that we run these things. Okay. Now, the person on the ground has a tremendous amount of autonomy in terms of how to sequence work. The team can self-organize the work. They work with the clients. The clients do some things. There's inspection and adaption all over the place. But they're not they're not violating leading agile's frames they're not violating the contract frames they're not violating the client's frames it's not like i had one consultant an early consultant um who's who basically said to me you're writing a contract and i was like i was like this contract makes no sense this this like i don't understand how it work he goes well the contract's just what we get them to do to buy the engagement and then we're just going to do whatever we need to and get on the ground i'm like no it's not what we do. Other places right? it's not do that. We don't do that. Yeah. Right? They're buying the, problems, the outcome. Yeah. They're buying the methodology. They're buying the visibility. They're buying the metrics. They're buying. What I tell people, it's like if we don't do what we say we're going to do, we're stealing from our clients. If and, we don't and from the company own, because we can't do that. You always talk about you don't get the next sale if we didn't deliver what we promised the first time. Well, yeah. So, yeah. So you have to, you have to be a good steward of the work that you've been given. So, so like nobody's, nobody's giving that, um, uh, midshipman or something, the autonomy to change the rules of how that equipment is maintained or when it's cleaned or when it's whatever, what they're given is some degree of latitude within a lot of training and a lot of procedure and a lot of constraints to make a local decision that's within the intent of the captain. Okay. Right. And we have it like totally confused. Like somehow like a thousand people are supposed to go self-organize and do whatever the F they want to. And that's going to produce the best result. And that is, that's incredibly naive and it's killing us. Right. So, so it's like, we have to have like a barely sufficient structure we have to have a barely sufficient organizational model, right? Right, that encourages collaboration and human connection and autonomy and ownership within really, really tight constraints. Yeah. Cool. Right. And within those tight constraints, people have tons of freedom, be themselves, show up to work, do all those things. Yeah. But if a scrum team 
can't establish a stable velocity against a known backlog, we're screwed. If, so, if, if hold on, I don't... want to say that. I want to hit that one again. If you're just okay. dragging work from one sprint to the next, this doesn't work. It doesn't work, right? right? Yeah. So it's like the whole the, again. What I used to when I used to teach people agile, project managers agile before I was even in the consulting business, this pre version one. I'd be like, look, here's the deal. This is the size of the backlog. This is the throughput of the team. You don't need to know anything about how this team works. Yeah. What you need to know is how many points they get done every sprint. Got 100 points in the backlog. They're getting done 25 points a sprint. In four sprints, they'll be done. That's eight weeks. Now, you can measure the number of points they get done in a sprint, or you can measure if the backlog increases, or you can measure these things, yeah. or if they're carrying – like. And, and you can project manage the hell out of the scrum team if you want to. For anybody if who – this is, this is the thing everyone's going to fuss about is the points thing. I don't care. It's points, not points, like whatever. Like So here's the thing, right? If people don't like points, then tell me how you want to estimate. No estimates. We're not doing that now. No, no. This is, this is what's bullshit, right? It's total bullshit. And I'm just going to tell my videographer – if you take out me swearing, I'm going to get mad at you. Um, you do not have the autonomy to take the swear words out of this particular podcast. So here's the thing, right? The whole thing behind no estimates, in my opinion, and, and I haven't paid any attention to that in 10 years, right? But the whole – because it's nonsense. The whole idea behind no estimates is you just count the number of things that you do, Right? That for that to make any sense, it's wholly dependent upon breaking things down into similarly sized increments. Right. And if everything's similarly sized, track throughput, you estimate it. Yeah. Right. If you know that everything is reasonably like between which, one which and originally two. it was when Ron came up with the idea of the points. So. Well, 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 so, well, so, yeah, right. So the whole thing with planning poker and points is it was a, it was a conversation, right? Every throws a card, and you're a one, and I'm a three, and we have a discussion about it, and what have you. Like, I think, like, for, if people are gonna basically say, yeah, we're just gonna get the, like, it's just this is what's mind numbing, and this is the reason why I think prices are going down on Scrum training, and coaches are getting laid off. It just gives me a headache. It's because, it's because. It's like it's just a fundamental misunderstanding yeah. of how the business works. There are so well, many. And like, those people work. Yeah, I was coaching between two executives and a client of ours, and I was trying to give myself. Um, I was trying to give the team some guidance. And if I have one executive who's like, I need reports, I need schedule variance, cost variance, earn value, all these different things, and this is how I want to run the organization. And I'm sitting over here with this other executive, and we're like. Well, we're going to do agile and we're going to do points and we're going to do this and whatever, right? Yeah. That, that, that schedule variance and cost variance and earn values is totally incongruent. No, it's not, right? So here's the deal, right? Um, all we're doing is we're measuring like how much progress have we made yeah. for the time that has been spent or how much money have we spent for the amount of progress we've made, right? Really simple concept. And it's a super reasonable ask. Yeah. Okay, so so you can use and if it makes it easier, right, to, to do something like and this is the example I had. It's like if I have five people on the team, five team weeks, two weeks per sprint, I have 10 team weeks. OK, cool. So let's estimate stuff in days. Let's estimate stuff in people weeks, like whatever you want to do. Yeah. Right. I don't I don't care. Right. So let's just keep it simple and say I have 10 people weeks. Okay. And so I bring these features in and um, and I think it's going to take 10 people weeks. So I have. 100 people weeks, 10 sprints, 10 people weeks per sprint. Then I start measuring my throughput. Mm -hmm. So 
what happens, and the reason why people don't want to do this is because if I only get done five, bad team, you're yeah. only doing five, you had 10. Well, no, what that's an indicator of is that is that those were estimated too low. Sure. So it's our estimates are off. That's what's that's what earned value is supposed to tell us. Our estimates are off. Right. If the if the the throughput is twice, well, then we know that our estimates were were too high. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we're going to get done faster. That's super valuable information. It only becomes bad information. And from that information, we can calculate schedule variance yeah. and and cost variance. Right. Yeah. If you'd rather spend your time not estimating and breaking things down into similarly sized units, do Have that all day it. long. Yeah. But I'm telling you, T-shirt sizing is absolute bullshit, too. Right. So if you want to do if you want to put things up on a wall and, and use it as a grouping mechanism, yeah. smalls, mediums, larges, extra larges. Right. But if you're doing some sort of hop like, well, we can usually get two extra larges and three smalls and whatever. Why don't we just put points on them yeah. and just use it as a rapid story pointing exercise and then just use points. Yeah. Right. Because because if we're trying to use no estimates or t-shirt sizes or something is a way to obfuscate pro man it's a way to obfuscate your progress to your management because your management is bad management right that is a pre that is that is you're, you're going solving to the wrong problem yeah there's no way to fight that battle there's no way to fight that battle and you won't win i'm not saying nobody's ever won i'm not saying maybe right if you're in the right company with the right leader in the right marketplace the right customers at the right you time not have to make any commitments yeah. the right time you're just emergent like sure i'm not I'm, there's places for it but in 95% of the places we're at it's just a non-starter yeah. for a conversation and so the fact like i get feedback on some of my posts where like tell me you know nothing about agile without saying you know nothing about agile and i'm just like i'm like tell me you know nothing about large organizations and what it takes to be successful without telling me you know nothing about large organizations I, I, and what it takes yeah. to be successful you know i feel like when people do so, that they need to go get another gig to do there's just so there's just so little pragmatism. I, I was debating with one guy on Twitter years ago, and I was like, and and he was something like I was talking about something about large scale transformation, and I think we back channeled it, and and I was and and basically, I was like, what's the largest size organization you've ever transformed? He's like three teams or five teams. That's at scale to me. And I'm like, dude, I'm talking about thousands of teams. Like he's like, oh yeah, I've never done anything like that. So we don't even agree on like what scale means, yeah. you know? So it's interesting and it's frustrating, but yeah, man, this was a wide ranging conversation. No, it's, no, it's interesting, right? It so you know, but if we stop. We got to do more next time. Well, let's do. I have, yeah, so I have options for you for your final question. Three options. Okay, so that was really a hard. You like literally. It's oh, it's on. long. These people have Christmas they have to get to. Uh, they're not going to listen to it this week. This isn't going to come you out get a, in the year. Well, we're going to do uh, another one. So we, we're going to do more. This one yeah. good though. We found a, a rhythm to yeah. get into where it can go a lot of different directions. I would like to next time. I would yeah. like to talk more about system stuff if that's okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, sure. But what do you have in mind? Just give me a teaser on it. What do people need to know about it? I mean, you just <sighs> said not right now. So just. Let it, right. let it percolate, but for right. next time, because the people that aren't familiar with systems thinking, they don't see the world that way. The, once you do, you see everything that way, and I think it would okay. be cool to just dig into that a little bit. And I know people will okay. be excited about it, but here's your choices. Okay. You can have a question about time travel, 
music or a retrospective of the year question? Okay, so here's the thing. So you only get one though. You got to pick one. Let's go down the time travel path. Right. I think you're going to know the answer on this. But if you but if you tell me what we're going to talk about Taylorism again, I think so. You might open up a big thing. We don't have so. To. I'm telling so you. for the folks that are listening, one of the questions I've started to ask in sort of celebration of the fact that we're getting a new Doctor Who is, and, and Mike doesn't watch Doctor Who. If you could go anywhere no. in the TARDIS. And take two companions. Who would they be, and where would you go? And so, since Mike's not familiar with the with the companions, we're just going to go with anywhere in time and space. Where would you well, go? So, so he, so Dave previewed this question for me, yeah. and um, and I was like, I don't know that I want to answer it because it's like super personal and super emotional. So my mom passed away when I was twenty three, so I'm fifty three, so about thirty years ago. And so I have like a lot of things I would like to ask that woman. So I'd go back in time and have lunch with her and go like, what were you thinking, Mary and my dad? No, I'm just kidding. Um, like, what was it like having me as a kid? You know, like I can't even imagine what it was like raising me and stuff. So I, I got questions out the wazoo that like I That's awesome, never have the answer to. So, so that was my question. But then you and responded. And I said that I would, so I would, if I could have lunch with anybody, it would be my grandfather. And just because I miss him terribly. But beyond that, the, well, no, I said if I got a second one, it would be Frederick Taylor because I would love okay. to have lunch with Frederick Taylor and be like, dude, what, what the hell are what? you thinking? Do you have any idea what this is going to do? But the biggest thing I always want everyone to know about Frederick Taylor, talk smack about that guy all day long. None of us would have jobs if it wasn't for Frederick Taylor. Well, so we can talk about this next time too, but but that was that was that your response to that was weaving in and out of this because that's why I kind of went down that path around real options. It's like you have two things going, right? It's like when you're talking about Taylorism, you're typically talking about like manufacturing and product development, like, like repeatable things, right? Things that that you're trying to do at scale that don't change. Yeah. Right. Cool. So, um, you know, part of the problem is we're responding to so much change and so much ambiguity and so much uncertainty and all those things. And, and in the presence of that, it's like in order to do things efficiently, sometimes you have to like people have to be told what to do. Like it can't all yeah. be like a custom boutique shop. So I think there's a place in this world for people that want to operate in really boutique environments. Yeah. I mean, Leading Agile is kind of a boutique environment. Um, you know, I, I started working for myself because I didn't want to work in other people's rule systems. Right. Start your own company, work on a small shop. Right. We have a lot of autonomy yeah. and freedom. Um, but systems at scale are typically not that except for in your little pockets of your scrum team. Yeah. So we can unpack that more, um, if you want to. Cool. Just out of curiosity, what was the music question you were going to ask me? Come on, let's do two. Okay. Uh, what okay. is the album that brought you the most joy this year? So I was going to go with best <laughs> album of the year, but it doesn't have to be released this year. I'm just, do we, which do we still call them albums by the way? I'm going with album. So can I tell you a funny, I'll just tell you a funny little story about albums. Um, you know, I, I'm on record as a huge Collective Soul fan. Every year in Atlanta, Ed Roland, lead singer of Collective Soul, my favorite artist, um, who I've had the honor to get to know and spend time with. Um, he had this album, literally an album, from, it was called Live at the Print Shop. It's with a guy locally who, like, brings in artists and puts them on YouTube and stuff like that. And so... Um, Ed and the band have done a lot of stuff with this guy from the print shop and they actually produced this album and I bought a copy of the album for charity. I don't have a record player. I don't have a turntable. Now you do. I saw it on Facebook. Yeah. So I went and bought a turntable just so I could listen 
um, to this one album. And how many Metallic so, albums have you bought since then? You know, I haven't bought any more albums, okay. right? I, I don't know. I don't know that that's something. It was just interesting and it was kind of worth a couple hundred bucks to have a turntable. So I have this pink record sitting on my turntable in my living room. One record. Like that. So everybody, buy Mike records for Christmas. I've been on a weird um, – I don't think it's an album per se, but I've been on, been on a weird little country kick. I'm lately. sorry. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> but I know, I'm not like any country. Like I have a theory – that basically, like, I grew up on Southern Rock, right? Leonard yeah. Skinner, Molly Hatchet. I was all that was in my ether, Almond Brothers, yeah. stuff like that. So I like Southern Rock. And um, I and I like that, that like, Southern California Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, stuff like that. Okay. I think that style of music is in country now. Yeah. It's not in rock, right? Yeah. And so And so there's several artists, and, and I'm not usually top-to-bottom fans of these artists, but these two I kind of like almost top-to-bottom is Zach Brown, right? We did the concert yeah. with Zach Brown um, and Kenny Chesney. Okay. And so earlier this year, my wife and I, we went down to, um, went down to Fort Lauderdale and saw Kenny Chesney on the beach. Cool. That was pretty cool. Um, 2022, we had our Zach Brown concert for our 10 year anniversary. It ended up being a 12 year anniversary. And so, so I don't know that it was like a single album or a single artist, Okay. but, but that's been kind of the thing. And so my wife and I went down to Antigua um, for like a 29th wedding anniversary trip and um, listened to a lot of that stuff on the beach. And so it's been pretty kind of cool. Awesome. 29 yeah. years is impressive too. It's Dude, man, run. coming up on 30 now, man. So um, yeah, and we're going strong, man. So we actually, you know, it's like, I think more people need to stay together longer because if you can figure it out, it's actually really good. After if you can years. wear each other down long enough. <laughs> figure it out, right? That's what we have, You right? just basically <laughs> give up. You're like, whatever. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm sure that when, when my kids are sitting around after I kick it or something and talking to my wife, they're going to be like, like how did you put that one So Awesome. Yeah. All right. Thank you, sir. You got it, man. Talk to you later, Dave. See you.